0: The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit CPIUSA.org.
1: Hey, everybody. How you doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to be here with all of you uh, right on time tonight, right? Right on schedule, right the way I like it. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Got a few things to talk about tonight. Should be a fun conversation with everybody. So, uh, yeah, so glad to have you all here. Uh, And I guess we'll just jump into it. ...of the
2: American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A
0: radical redistribution of economic power... I mean, we know
1: that racism is just, just a bipartisan to do. Everything would be all if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. we got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the basket. We need a government of action. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. So great to be here with all of you. Um, A lot of things going on, um, you know, good, bad and otherwise. Um, As far as the bad, we've got a horrendous war going on in Ukraine. Uh, that is awful. Um, and uh, what else? Um, you know, we've, I'm still banned from PayPal. A lot of bad things we could talk about. Star is good. Um, we've got a national gathering for the Center for Political Innovation coming up. Uh, we've got a new campaign to raise awareness that I'm going to talk to you all about. Um, we've got some important history we're going to talk about. So, the way this works, for those of you who may not be familiar, the way this works uh, is I give opening remarks, uh, which is just, you know, you know, historical topics, what's on my mind, etc. And then from there, uh, after we do the historical topics, uh, uh, the opening remarks, right after we do opening remarks, whatever, then from there, I do a roll call where I call you all out as I see you names and locations, and we find out who is on the other side of the camera. And then uh, after that, we do the roll call. Uh, I'm sorry, the roll call. Uh, And then after that, we do the super chat questions. So all throughout the show, I'll be writing down your super chat comments. Um, I'll be writing them down uh, and I'll answer them uh, in the second half of the show. So if there's something you want me to talk about tonight, uh, if there's some topic you really want to hear me give my opinion or tell you what I know about, uh, by all means, shoot me a super chat. Um, Why is the USA trying to start World War III in Ukraine? We can certainly talk about that. And uh, like I said, I write them down. Why is US trying to start World War III in Ukraine? And in the second half of the show, I answer your super chat questions. That's the the format that we generally use on these lives. So um, I guess I'll I'll start out by uh, by kind of updating you on what happened to the United Nations today, which I covered for RT International. I I sat in front of my bookshelf and broadcast into into Moscow and gave. My report on the U.N. Security Council meeting today, Um, it was it was pretty horrifying uh, because Russia has been coming to the U.N. over and over and over again. Uh, I haven't heard about that. Um, I wrote it down. Russia has been coming to the U.N. over and over and over again. With evidence of Ukrainian war crimes, Ukrainian atrocities, showing that they are trying to protect civilian lives. And the USA just responds to whatever Russia says. Whatever Russia says, they respond to it by saying, that's a conspiracy theory. That's crazy. And they don't even they don't even give any refutation or any facts. And Russia has brought evidence over and over again. For example, one thing that the UN keeps calling for is humanitarian corridors which is pretty basic. If you're having a big fight, if there's going to be a fight in a, an area between the Ukrainian forces and the Russian forces, uh, that those uh, you know civilians who live there ought to be able to leave. Well, Russia has been f- trying very hard to facilitate these people leaving. The Ukrainians have been not allowing people to go into these humanitarian corridors. They haven't been allowing the civilians to flee. And when they do flee, the Ukrainians have been then shooting them in the back you know, and calling them traitors. They want to have as many civilians as they can in these areas, uh, so they can then blame Russia for attacking civilians. I mean, this is like ISIS-style tactics uh, the Ukrainians are using. And Russia has documented this many times, said, look, here's the humanitarian corridor we opened, here's where the people can flee. No coverage, no one acknowledges it, uh, you know, and the Ukrainians are preventing their own civilians from fleeing. Um, no coverage of this, none. I mean, U.S. media and, and the international community, the you know, the allies of the United States, of course, they." Ignore it. I mean, they just pretend this isn't happening. It is happening. Um, another, well, right, Chris Smalls with Biden, right? And uh, another thing that uh, is worth pointing out um, is that in addition to this, right, uh, China got up and spoke at the UN, and usually China is pretty, pretty hands-off when they speak at the UN. They're, you know, they don't They don't fire it up. They don't let it rip. You know, they just kind of get up there and say, we want peace in the world. We urge de-escalation of tensions. Not today. Uh, China laid into NATO and talked about how NATO is supposed to be a defensive coalition, but it's waging unprovoked wars around the world and and caused chaos and an expansion of terrorism. They talked about how uh, coming up on the anniversary of when NATO bombed the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia, and killed a number of Chinese diplomats and diplomatic workers and such. And they they, talk, they called out NATO. China was on the floor of the UN condemning NATO. That was pretty awesome to watch. Um, and then when the U.S. representative spoke, I mean, it was shocking to me. I was just blown away by the utter ridiculousness of what uh, the U.S. representative said. Uh, the U.S. representative, um, I'll actually pull up ex- the exact quote, because this shows you how ridiculous, how, how stupid and ridiculous Uh, U.S. leaders are. This is what she said. This is an exact quote. I'm going to give you the exact quote from the U.N. representative of the United States. This is what she said. And it's like, how can she say this? This is what she said. She said, Russia even claims Ukraine is attacking itself and bombing its own. These lies defy all logic and common sense. Well, actually... Ukraine has been bombing and killing its own civilians since 2014. The whole world knows it. They have been shelling Donbass and killing their own civilians. They killed over 14,000 of them. So the idea that Ukraine might kill its own civilians is not outrageous at all. It's not outrageous at all. And they have just announced that, that any, any Ukrainian uh, who tries to flee uh, or, or tries, you know, they consider to be collaborating with the Russians, they're going to execute them. Uh, they've been tying people to lampposts and, and telephone poles and torturing them. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, the idea that Ukraine might kill its own civilians is not outrageous at all. But that's how ridiculous the USA is. They get up there. The U.S. leaders, they just get up there and they say, oh, that's all a conspiracy theory. Everything from Russia, everything that Russia ever says is a big lie. And and the idea that Ukraine might kill its own civilians, which they've been doing over and over and over again, uh, that somehow that's that's, um, you know you know, uh, there you go. That's simply not possible. So um, I wanted to bring that to your attention. But Russia got up there and they said, look, we've we've shown you evidence after evidence. And the point that Russia keeps making, which is a really important point, is that U.S. leaders don't care about Ukrainians. It's not, and this is what people don't seem to get, right? They say, well, it's like the USA hates Russia, but it loves Ukraine. The USA doesn't love Ukraine. The USA is just using Ukraine to attack Russia. Uh, And they have stoked up, you know, the school textbooks that rewrite the history of the Second World War, the arming of these fascist militias that, you know, admire Nazi collaborators like Stepan Badera. U.S. leaders do not care about the Ukrainians. Uh, They are using them as cannon fodder. um, And they are trying to keep this war going as long as possible uh, in order to keep people dying so they can hurt Russia. And, and it's like they, they, they claim they care about the Ukrainians. If you care about people, you don't want them to keep dying in a war. And you don't try to prolong a war and where they're dying. You would be trying to negotiate a peace. USA doesn't want to do that. Nancy Pelosi just went over there and was shaking people's hands. They don't care about Ukrainians. That's really what you need to understand. They don't care about Ukrainians. They do not care about Ukrainians. And do not let them, all these people with their Ukraine flags and they're crying for Ukraine, you care about Ukrainians, you would want peace with Russia. You'd want negotiation right now. So don't don't let anybody get away with that uh, when they when they talk at you. Don't let anyone try to tell you, oh, I, I care about Ukraine. You care about Ukrainians, you would be trying to negotiate peace right now. And that's pretty clearly not what's happening. I'm sorry, I'm trying to fix my audio here. I, this microphone is supposed to be so good. Ay ay ay! Is it working again? Is the mic working? No, it's not. No, it's not. Bye. Technical difficulties here. Technical difficulties. All right. with this mic work. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Now the mic is working once again. What a lovely night. All right. But anyway, folks, I mean, so that, that's been on my mind. But I wanted to also uh, bring your attention to an initiative that the Center for Political Innovation is taking on. Um, So uh, this is a statement um, that we just published now, like just recently. Um, This is a statement that we put out. um, And I'm just going to read you the statement. It's not very long. um, And we have it as a one-page leaflet that's been laid out. If someone has the one-page leaflet, if there's somebody in the chat who can post a link to the one-page leaflet, we want to get this everywhere. Uh, This is what American working people need to hear um and so we're trying to get this statement everywhere we're you know going around we're having speak outs we're having mass leafletings we want to get this everywhere this is a, a message from the center for political innovation so i just posted the link i'm going to read it to you and if somebody i think uh Ryan uh, class analysis he was in the chat if he can post a link where people can download the pdf of it that would be awesome he already did so if you want a pdf great. And if we can just get this distributed everywhere, if in every city and every state people are reading this statement, this is what people need to hear now more than ever, right? You you know, this is what they need to hear. They don't need to hear that Republicans are fascists and, you know, overturn Roe versus Wade and we need to all go out in the streets and have a big Maoist civil war and cut people's heads off. That's not what we need to hear. We need to be able to hear this statement. This is how serious revolutionaries should be talking to Americans right now. Global famine is on the horizon. Our leaders leaders know it. Here in America, the farming states are bracing for a summer of droughts and wildfires. Biden has admitted that food shortages are coming, saying it's going to be real. Ukraine is a major wheat exporter. Its harvest will be 50% less than usual due to war. Russia's ability to export grain is blocked by U.S. sanctions. Russian fertilizer exports to Africa, South America, and India will also be significantly lower. In major U.S. cities, food banks are already swarmed. The pandemic has left millions of working families struggling. Small businesses have closed down, while ultra-monopolies like Amazon and Walmart have enriched themselves. The price of food and gas is rising, while wages remain low. Rural and suburban neighborhoods throughout the heartland already have crumbling roads and fragile power grids, and added food insecurity will only exacerbate the current crisis. Why don't our leaders treat this looming famine as an emergency? Why aren't Joe Biden and Congress laying out a clear plan to bring relief to working people throughout the country? Why is the United Nations not convening an emergency session to mobilize food relief? Why is Congress instead on the verge of wasting another $33 billion, not to feed the hungry or stop the war, but to intensify our proxy war with a nuclear-armed superpower? War in Europe only means increased hunger, higher gas prices, greater poverty, and needless suffering imposed on the American people. The truth is that these things do not have to be this way. Instead of a government. That sits on its hands as working people starve The United States could have a government of action That fights for working families Joe Biden, along with the Democrats and Republicans Do not work for the American people But rather for the Wall Street bankers Weapons manufacturers, oil monopolists And the Silicon Valley elite However, across the planet An alternative economic model is emerging Vladimir Putin rescued Russia from the neoliberal nightmare of the 1990s, in part by reasserting state control over the country's oil and gas, and then using the energy revenue to rebuild the Russian economy. China has raised over 800 million people out of poverty with five-year economic plans and rational control over its economy in a model called socialism with Chinese characteristics. Nicaragua and the Bolivarian countries have eradicated illiteracy and provided modern housing in historically impoverished regions. The Islamic Republic of Iran has facilitated a surge of economic growth and development despite U.S. sanctions and threats. Breaking out of the global imperialist free trade system and putting popular power in control of the commanding heights offers the road to stability and economic growth and a better future for all humanity. Prior to 2011, the Islamic Socialist government of Libya had the highest life expectancy in Africa. The great African leader, Muammar Gaddafi, built the world's largest irrigation system, the Great Man-Made River, turning dry deserts into farmland. As climate change intensifies, the heartland of America will need a great man-made river of its own. To ensure that we grow enough food for American families as well as to deal with the ongoing problem of of wildfires, the time has come for an emergency construction project. The Center for Political Innovation calls on Joe Biden to bring the troops home from overseas, stop spending money on foreign wars, and instead to take swift executive action to construct the River of Life. The River of Life is our proposal for a massive irrigation system that would bring rejuvenation to millions of working people and allow for their communities to flourish. Thousands of construction workers, pipe fitters, engineers, architects, welders, metal workers, electricians, and others could be immediately hired to build a mechanism for bringing water to farms and communities throughout southwestern regions and the farm belt. Experts from China and other countries that have had similar projects in recent years should be brought in as consultants. Among the sinister forces running our country from Washington D.C. and corporate boardrooms, there is a culture of death. They are too ma- There are too- They think there are too many people in the world, and they view the population of the country as an annoying horde to be managed, herd to be managed. Their vision for the future involves private prisons, charter schools, reducing consumption, social media brainwashing, drug addiction, all leading toward a low-wage police state to control us as we useless eaters gradually die off. The alternative to their high-tech dark ages is a government of action that would view each American as an asset, full of potential to help construct a better life for all people. Such a government would prioritize education, scientific breakthroughs, securing long-term sustainable economic development, and cultivating a culture of innovators, citizens taking responsibility for the future of their country at the community, state, federal, and international level. The River of Life is just one example of the many great possibilities that could emerge from overturning a system with profits in command and unleashing popular power and 21st century socialism in America. The Center for Political Innovation aims to advance policy solutions that awaken the American people and have them demand a government that works for them, not the billionaires. We seek to build an anti-monopoly coalition with the working class at its center, by aligning in solidarity with revolutionary forces around the world against the international financial oligarchy, we call on you to help us raise awareness about the pending global famine and its imperialist causes. We call on you to help us advance real policy solutions that could rebuild this country and defeat the ultra-monopolists. Please join the Center for Political Innovation. That is our statement. That is our message uh, that we have put out there. That um, we have a leaflet. Uh, that it's based on, um, and, you know, a PDF. I think there's a couple typos in there that need to be corrected. That's okay. You know, it's always a work in progress. We can we can fix that. But uh, we've got the link, class analysis. It's got the link to the PDF. We need to get this everywhere. We need to get this river of life message everywhere, right? People need to understand who the real enemies of the American people are. And we need to get this message everywhere um, because uh, it's it's very important. People don't understand what we could have—a government of action that fights for working families, that is working to raise people up out of poverty, that's working to eradicate scarcity, that's working to make people smarter, not make people stupider. Right? I mean, so much could be done, and this is this is a rational way to talk about it. Um, and if we go to people throughout the United States with this kind of message, um, you know it's coherent. It's clear. It explains that there is a global famine coming up. Um, and, uh, I think it could really, really be helpful. I think this is what people need to hear. So we put this out there, we've made a leaflet and we are going to try to try to get people to think we're going to try to stimulate thought on the part of the U S population as much as we possibly can with messages like this. Um, so, I mean, there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about in my opening remarks. Um, One thing that's interesting is I've seen some back and forth on Twitter about the Weathermen. Uh, You know, the Weathermen, the Weather Underground. uh, This was a terrorist, uh, ultra-left, adventurist group in the 1960s. Uh, The Weathermen, the Weather Underground. uh, They became kind of a big deal in the 2008 election because one of them, who's from a billionaire family, Uh, Bill Ayers, was apparently, you know, he turned himself in and you know he's just kind of a normal citizen now, but he. He was a supporter of Barack Obama, lived in the same apartment building as Barack Obama. Thoughts on Rigovian's book on the left opposition to Stalin? I don't I don't know who Rigovian is. I have not read Rigovian. Um, but, um, you know, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of a phase, right? It used to be probably not anymore, but it used to be if you were getting into communist politics, you were a young person. Every young person went through a phase where they were fascinated by the weathermen and the weather underground. Um, just because, you know, they had this radical image that they had, you know, engaged in armed attacks and all of that. And, uh, I've got to tell you, you know, yeah, when I was 14, you know, I might've you know, been fascinated with them for a while, but, but they were not a good group. They were not a good group. And I actually have here, I have a couple of things I want to talk to folks about, about the weathermen and why they're, they're still a problem. The group is long gone, right? This was a group in the 1970s that, blew things up and was engaged in armed attacks in the name of communism. Um, but they were a real problem. And I actually have here an interview with the great Black Panther revolutionary leader, Fred Hampton. And this is Fred Hampton talking about the Weathermen. So the context for this interview is before the Weathermen went completely underground and did their bombing campaign, they called for this, this event called the Days of Rage, which was this left adventurist mobilization in Chicago. They brought like 300 people out in Chicago to fight the police with chains and baseball bats. And it, was, it wasn't it was like a peaceful protest where the police attacked and people defended themselves. It wasn't that at all. It was they assembled to engage in mass violence. Then they basically announced this is going to be the first battle of the revolution or whatever. And they called the Days of Rage. And the leader of the Black Panther Party of Chicago, Fred Hampton, who was later murdered by the FBI. I mean, they gunned him down in his bed while he was sleeping. This is the guy who invented the free breakfast program. This is the guy who had the gang truce and created the rainbow coalition with the the Puerto Ricans and and the Chicanos and and different nationalities united into one grouping to to fight for their rights and Fred Hampton denounced it and he said this is not a good thing to do and this is actually Fred Hampton's interview he gave uh, about why he himself was not supporting the days of rage by the Weather Underground.
2: Fred, where does the Black Panther Party stand concerning the Weathermen, the SDS? We stand way back from the SDS and the Weathermen because we believe that the Weathermen action is two
0: actions. It's RIM2 and Weathermen. We think this, they call them both national action. We think that RIM2 is national action and Weathermen is national reaction, you know.
1: RIM2, by the way, is Revolutionary Youth Movement 2. When the Weathermen started announcing they wanted to have these crazy street fighting, you know, the Weathermen, their real name was the Revolutionary Youth Movement. So, you know, SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, divided into two factions. Uh, One was called the Workers-Student Alliance. It was led by the Progressive Labor Party. And they said that young people should get jobs in factories and just get jobs in factories. Revolutionary Youth Movement said that, you know, they wanted to increase protests in the streets and they wanted to align with the Black Panthers. The Progressive Labor Party said that the Black Panthers, because they were racial you know, it was a racial organization. They said that they were racial separatists. They were against the Black Panthers. But the Revolutionary Youth Movement, they supported the Black Panthers. They want to intensify street protests against the Vietnam War. Um, so, but then when the leaders of the Revolutionary Youth Movement or the Weathermen started engage, calling for like street violence, et cetera, you had a breakaway called RIM 2 or Revolutionary Youth Movement 2. And that's actually what Mike Klonsky. And Bob Avakian and a lot of the, you know, Jerry Tong and a lot of the people who went on to become the big Maoists in the 70s, they were in RIM-2. They were rejecting the Weathermen. So the Black Panthers supported RIM-2, Revolutionary Youth Movement 2, against uh, the days of Rage. That's what Fred Hampton's talking about.
0: We think it is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh custaristic, and that's the bad part about it. It's custaristic in that its leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call it revolution. And it's nothing but child's play, it's folly, and it's criminal because people can be hurt. We say that they're doing exactly what the pigs want them to do when they take people down and, and just do nothing play around and the pigs are prepared for this and they'll wipe all of those young people out. We think these people may be sincere, but they're misguided, they're muddleheads and they're scatterbrains. The only way we can show them is to criticize them like we're doing right now and then leave from here and go to the federal building and have a demonstration that's to educate, a demonstration that is uh, disciplined and organized, you know, and that's what we're going to have to do and
2: let them see the examples. Tell me why you feel the approach of the SDS weatherman is wrong. I feel it is wrong, uh, just as I said before, no, don't, don't tell me, just you say before, that's why I asked you again. Just answer straight, okay. just in case we use this part. I feel that it's Let wrong. Let me ask you again. Why do you feel that the approach of the SDS weatherman is the wrong approach? I feel that it's wrong because it's pig action, you see.
0: They're doing exactly what the pigs want them to do. They're leading people into a situation where the, the, It's an astronomical situation, too great for the people to deal with. It's a situation where you got a bunch of mechanical pigs with 357 Magnums and shotguns and mechanical mace and all that type of thing. And then they're talking about they're going to... Carry on a revolutionary struggle. That's not a revolution. It's insanity. It's it's a madness. It's nostalgia and it's a massacre. That's what a potential massacre. That's what it is. And we don't support that because we've said all power to the people.
2: All the power is manifested in the people. We don't have any people whose lives we believe that should be thrown away. Has the Weatherman SDS tried to get you to go on their side? Have you met with them and what happened? We met with the, the Weatherman faction of SDS uh, several
0: times. We've had ideological struggles, and we have ideological differences. So what we did was we had an, uh, we, we the other faction of SDS that agreed with the Black Panther Party called for an alternate action, a well-disciplined uh, action not to provoke pigs, an action not to talk about uh, setting up s- confrontations with the pigs because the people are not ready for confrontations. These confrontations that they have are premature. They're politically
2: premature, and they're wrong because they commit people in a situation which they're not anywhere prepared for. Well, why do you think the weatherman SDS tried to link the Black Panther Party to its movement? I don't know if it was actually the weatherman of SDS. I'd have to say that it was the establishment press
0: that is nothing but a tool of Warden Nixon's uh, machine. We call him Warden Nixon because the whole world is a penitentiary, and he's just a warden of the whole world. And you see, these people are just an arm that he uses for fascist oppression, you know. And I think today, these fascist uh, news media might have did
2: that. Now, briefly, how would you sum up what the Weatherman SDS is trying to do and what you think of what they're trying to do? I'd say that basically they believe that that white people need to learn how to struggle. That they believe that these white workers need to
0: learn how to struggle through confrontations. I'd have to say that basically I believe that this is incorrect. I believe that white workers have been struggling, they're some of the most violent people in the world. I believe that what they need is they need a redirection in their ideology and in their politics. They need to know who to struggle against.
1: Wow. Wow. So they don't need violence in the streets. They need a redirection in their politics. They need to learn who to struggle against. You hear that? He's basically saying that the broad masses of white people in the United States need to be taught about communism and they need to be educated about Marxism. That, you know, you, it's not about condemning them. And it's also not about, you know, building the movement and going out in the streets. We need to educate. Educate the broad masses of white people in the United States and, and get them to stand in solidarity with oppressed people.
0: Workers need to start to begin to learn that their job is to struggle against the bosses. And until they do this, then struggle is incorrect. It's like no struggle at all. We say that if you don't struggle correctly, you shouldn't struggle, but you should struggle. We said, Dad, a struggle and your dad a win. Dad, not to struggle and you don't deserve the win, but we have to struggle properly.
2: What about the special approach of uh, Weatherman, which seems to be violence? Well, you see, it's. I don't think it's really violence. You know what I mean? I think it's just a lot of folly. It's a lot of child's play.
0: I think that to have violence, you've got to be able to cope with violence. You know what I mean? And that's what the Black Panther. See, the Black Panther Party. A lot of people say we're violent. We're, we're a self-defense organization that believes that the people should be educated what's going on.
1: We are a self-defense organization, not an adventurist organization, not an organization that intentionally goes out and engages in provocations. An organization that builds up the strength of the people in their communities. And recognizes their right to defend themselves. This is the scientific view of, Mar- uh, of revolution. Revolution is an act of self-defense. It's the people building up their own communities and their own organizations and defending themselves, right? Uh, it's not left adventurism. This is a great interview. We do
0: defend our offices, and we do defend our homes. This is a constitutional right. Everybody has There's nothing funny about that. The only reason they get mad at the Black Panther Party when they do it is for the simple reason that we're political. And they don't want to admit this. There are a lot of young organizations around, but we're a political organization. We're an organization that understands that politics is nothing but war without bloodshed, and war is nothing but politics with bloodshed. That It's just like you stretch something, and it goes. you can stretch things, they're going to be in another thing. If you
2: stretch politics so long, it'll be war, and that's where we're at. Well, then why do you feel it's so important for the Black Panther Party to disavow any real link with the Weatherman STS? I think it's important because there are a lot of people that watch the Black Panther Party, for example. They observe
0: us and participate with us. And if we can be connected up with this, then it would be very... Uh, uh, unadvantageous to the people and very unadvantageous to the struggle, in that people that claim to be revolutionary would be going down roads that they think might be revolution, but in fact they're not roads of revolution. They'll be going east when their intentions are going west. And also, it's important because the chairman Bobby Seale is in town and he's being tried by this fascist judge Adolf Hitler Hoffman, you know, and he's being tried without a lawyer. And we've got to bring all of the attention and focus on this trial that we possibly can so that people can understand that these people are more capable of being. Building gas chambers than Hitler ever was capable of building gas chambers and we're going to have to get together we're going to have to have some anti-gas chamber marches and some anti-fascism marches and some anti-hitler-hoffman marches and some anti mussolini attorney general mitchell marches and some anti-daily and some anti-hammerhead hammerhead marches these are the things we're going to have to do The people need to be educated if they're educated we can resist and we can stop this fascism okay all right thanks
2: for giving okay. us okay. a shot okay good okay Okay. Thanks. All right. That's
3: too hot, Bill. Too hot?
2: No, Howard. Fred, the uh, weatherman branch of the SDS uh, seems to be giving the impression that the Black pa- Panther Party is, is with them. No, the Black Panther Party is not with Weatherman. Let me explain very clear, clearly
0: that we believe that action like that is action of insanity. It's not a revolution, even. You see, going out in the streets and getting people shot and killed and maimed, that's insanity. It's chauvinistic and it's custaristic. And when we say custodistic, we mean it's, it's a type of uh, action on the part of a leadership that will lead people into the same thing that custod led them in. We believe that all action around that weatherman faction is going to turn out to be the little big Horn. And we're not getting involved in any Little Big Horns in the city of Chicago. The Black Panther Party intends to support anything that is disciplined, anything that does not provoke violence on the part of the pig power structure, because this is what they want to do. They want to kill some people. And these leaders are nothing but leaders who have customistic tendencies. They will lead people into slaughters. And we think that that's uh,
2: it's criminal to the people. It's crime against the people. Cut it for a minute. That's real good. Now I want to put it just one other way. I'm going to ask you, why don't you... Fred, why doesn't the Black Panther Party support the tactics of the Weatherman SDS? We don't support those tactics because they are
0: acts of provocation and they're acts that the pigs, the, the policemen in the city, enjoy. They're doing just what the police want them to do. Our actions are just the opposite from that. We are educating the people to the wrongs that the pigs commit to the fascists around the country, and I think that's the proper
2: way to do the thing.
1: Educate people.
2: Has the uh, weathermen tried to uh, curry favor with the uh, Black Panthers? Right. We've had several discussions with uh, the weathermen. we tried to
0: talk them out of a lot of the anarchistic uh, demonstrations that they have planned here. We tell them that we don't believe in demonstration for the sake of demonstration. We believe in demonstration for the sake of education. And we still go on that basic theory.
1: We, be- For the sake of education.
0: We believe that people need to be educated if we're ever going to defend ourselves against the fascism that's running rampant in the United States of America and all over the world today.
2: How violent do you think the Weathermen are looking to become?
0: I don't, uh, I don't think it's really a question of violence. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a, we call it muddleheadness, you know what I mean? I think how muddlehead will they become is the question. How uh, masochistic and anarchistic will they become, you know what I mean? how much will they enjoy seeing people slaughtered in the streets before they get, get uh, come around and get them a plan of well-disciplined, well-organized type of education demonstration where the people can be saved. We say all power to the people and all power is manifested in the people. We don't have any people to just throw away and throw their lives away. We think the people that throw the people's lives away in these types of counter-revolutionary folly, those people are criminals and they should be judged as such, and these people that commit crimes against the people, the people should try them and indict them and sentence them.
2: Uh, tell me, Fred, because the Black Panther Party feels this way and because the Panthers have been linked with Weathermen through the Weathermen, uh, have you tried in any way to dissuade the Weathermen uh, to stop them from uh, this kind of tactic? We've talked to Weathermen time and time
0: again, you know what I mean, and told them that we thought this was wrong. And let me say this I don't believe these people are. Uh, I think they're some sincere people, but I think they're a little mixed up. That's why I'd be very careful about the word I use. I try to use words like muddle-headed, you know what I mean, and uh, scatterbrains, that's what they are. There's some young people who really have some revolutionary fervor, but they don't know how to direct that fervor. So what we're going to have to do is try to re-channel that into some type of revolutionary discipline. I don't. I think if anybody looks at us, we're an example, we try to set examples for the people. The Black Panther Party is the most disciplined organization in the, in the country, and the pigs still attacked the Black Panther Party office, so that shows that we're still doing something to the power structure, but we don't have to do it in a way where we put people's lives on the line. That's not necessary. And we try to tell
2: Okay, uh, tell me what else you want to get off your
0: chest. I'd like to tell you, you know, there's one thing that's very important to the people, that they see that that so-called trial at the Federal Building is nothing but what I call a -a hecatomb. It's a public sacrifice where they're slaughtering the leaders of the people, and the only way we're going to stop that is the people. Resist that, you know what I mean? Because it's not a question of non-violence or violence. It's a question of resistance to fascism, a non-existent, non-existence, non-existence. This is what we're gonna have to deal with. We have to go down to the fa- to the federal building and, and deal with that judge. We call him Judge Adolf. Hitler Hoffman and and deal with the Attorney General, Attorney General Mussolini Mitchell. All these people that have these fascist tendencies, they they have this society is more technical than the German society ever was. They are going to be a better and more adequate gas chambers and we've got to be prepared to deal with that. Education is the only way. We've got to educate the people. You got
2: anything else you want to say? No, not not particularly. right. look, uh, just want to do some... uh...
1: Wow, wow. Now, that interview, it's almost like Someone's going to accuse me. I swear, I swear, the people on the Internet who don't like me are going to accuse me of having gone back in time and paid Fred Hampton to do a promotional for the Center for Political Innovation. That interview was like the most glowing endorsement of everything that we are doing right now. What did he repeat over and over and over again in that interview? Education, education. And he says, he says, they don't need to go and tell the white workers they need to struggle. They need to tell them who to struggle against about the workers and the bosses. Wow, I mean, education over and over again. And on top of that, he's he's saying uh, he's saying that we don't need you know violence for violence's sake. You know, we don't need uh, you know we don't need to provoke confrontations, put people in, in situations to be slaughtered. Um, I mean, this is it's amazing stuff. I mean, that interview is is basically it's that that it's just like a full on endorsement of of everything that we do i mean fred hampton fred hampton basically just endorsed everything i say he said out of the movement to the masses that's what he said right you know you know get to the people and educate them right i i mean it's like my goodness right my goodness i mean it's like that revolutionary fred hampton just laid out our approach right get to the masses engage in education teach people who to struggle with um you know uh yeah yeah i mean that's pretty blatant now i want to i want to show you some other things because you know this this weather underground group they basically decided that the broad masses of white workers in the united states were the enemy and that became their position and that book settlers by jay sakai that's now being promoted You know, the Communist Party can claim they don't promote it, but they're all reading it. They're all promoting it. Settlers, the mythology of the white proletariat, you know, this idea that the broad masses of Americans, average Americans are the enemy. um, You know, and the Weathermen came to that conclusion. Um, And based on that, uh, instead of trying to organize and build a mass movement, uh, they just engaged in a bunch of left adventurous terrorism. Um, And... um, you know, I I, I want to kind of go over just just some of the history here. I've got a couple more clips I can show you. Um, you know, this is this is when they uh, they announced their fall offensive in 1970.
2: From the underground, that radical left-wing group, the Weathermen, has claimed responsibility for yesterday's dynamiting of a statue of a Chicago policeman. The group.
1: That's Walter Cronkite by. By by the way, that threat, Walter Cronkite, very famous American news guy.
2: Promises more attacks on the establishment around the entire country starting next week. The medium for this message was a tape recording, reputedly by the fugitive weatherman leader Bernadine Dorn. It came by mail this morning in New York to the youth international party, the Yippies, who invited newsmen to hear it. And our Ben Silver was there as the tape was played.
3: Sisters and brothers. A year ago, we blew away the Haymarket pig statue at the start of the youth riot in Chicago. The head of the police sergeant's association called emotionally for all-out war between the pigs and us. We accepted. Last night, we destroyed the pig again. This time, it begins a fall offensive of youth resistance that will spread from Santa Barbara to Boston, back to Kenton, Kansas. Now we are everywhere. And next week, families and tribes will attack the enemy around the country. We're not just attacking targets. We're bringing a pitiful,
1: helpless giant to its knees. We- families and tribes, you know, they're, they're, they're LARPing, right? In their mind, you know, they're, they're some indigenous group fighting the evil white man. They're, to, they're doing what they now, you know, talk about the movie Avatar, it's not about mobilizing the working class to fight for their rights and build a better society. No, it's about tearing down civilization. You know. We invite Key and Nixon and Agnew to travel in this country. Come to the high schools and campuses.
3: But guard your planes, guard your colleges, guard your banks, guard your children, guard your doors. Can you verify that the voice
2: is that of Bernadine Dorn?
3: Yes, I'm her sister, and I'll verify that it's her voice. What is your I, first name, Jennifer. Are you going to
2: turn this information over to the police?
3: Well, I'm just, I assume they already have it since we've used their, our phones here. <laughs> I mean, it's open knowledge. This is, right, this is their statement.
1: Do How do you feel about what your sister is advocating?
3: I think it's right on. I think she's far out, and all weathermen are far out. Could you explain that? <laughs> there, are there are brothers, brothers and sisters and in the general. underground. They're forced to be outlaws by the way the society is run, and we think they're great.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, you know, it's like this isolated group of people that want to blow things up and isolate themselves. And then on top of that, um, here's how it ended.
2: And all vestiges of the turbulent 60s are now just a page in history. That's what former members of the Weather Underground are saying after the surrender of Bernadine Dorn and William Ayers last week. The heyday of those young radicals began in 1969. The times have changed, and so have the attitudes of the young, as our Diane Lawson found out.
3: Ten years ago, Bernadine Dorn was shouting revolution. This administration building was held and occupied by students for three weeks. Could it happen today? Probably not.
2: Chicago sounded the death knell that there is no one left, but the FBI does not agree. Okay, Although agents have given right. up intense hunts for the radicals.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers turning themselves in. They never did any, any jail time. Uh, now, Bernadine Dorn was called before a congressional, uh, before a grand jury, and she refused to testify against her uh, the other members of the group, and so she ended up doing like eight months in federal prison for uh, contempt of a grand jury. But that's the only uh, the only jail time any of them ever really received because they were wealthy. They were all from very, very, very wealthy families, and the government kind of appreciated them doing it um, because you know it it made everyone terrified of revolutionaries. It was left adventurism. It was isolating from the broad masses. It viewed the broad masses of people as the enemy. You know, Ryan Overstreet, it's funny, uh, you, you talk about how they have Charles Manson vibes. They admired Charles Manson um, at their uh, Flint War Congress. Uh, they praised Charles Manson because he killed wealthy people, because he killed movie stars who were rich and and you know, and, and then they actually, not only they like him, but I guess in some of the reports it was reported that Sharon Tate, uh, one of, you know, the movie star who was killed by Charles Manson's goons or whatever, uh, it was reported that she had been stabbed to death with a fork. Um, so, uh, apparently the, the weathermen all started saluting each other with a fork. They started fork saluting each other, you know? Uh, I mean, it's just, it was a demented group. It was a group of people who hated average Americans, loved violence, um, and had this kind of fantasy that they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be the, uh, the good Americans, uh, who were, it's, it's really, really dangerous, right? And this is, this is the Antifa mindset, right? This is the Antifa mindset. Um, this is the mindset of, of the, uh, you know, the bread tube types, right? They hate average Americans. Average Americans are all a bunch of mongrels and buffoons who aren't as educated as they are. Um, and, uh, you know, they want to punish uh, the average Americans for their crimes, for benefiting from empire. They want to drive down living standards. And they especially hate Russia and China and, and Cuba and all the anti-imperialist countries. Uh, Why? Because uh, because those countries, you know, they're not having real socialism where the priority is on on, you know, on their pessimistic worldview. They're not going back to nature. They're not dismantling civilization. Right. They they, you know, they're building power plants. They're building schools. They're not just tearing everything apart. Um, It's a wild, wild, uh, wild history there. And I I wanted to just talk about that because, I mean, the weathermen are not the city building tendency. Right. The weathermen were very much an ultra leftist deviation. Now, in some ways, I mean, at least they did support the Vietnamese people and their struggle against U.S. imperialism, and they did support Cuba, North Korea, and such. Now, nowadays, the synthetic left types who have the Weatherman viewpoint that hate the broad masses of people, they don't support anti-imperialist countries. And in fact, that Weatherman aesthetic, you know, that tear-it-down-burn-it-down aesthetic— uh, that has been hijacked by the imperialists right now. That's what they're using to, you know, justify support, uh, for, you know, the neo-Nazis in Ukraine, you know, some of these jokers in liberation road and, uh, and, uh, committees of correspondence are, are comparing, uh, you're talking about a people's war in Ukraine. I mean, it's so ridiculous, right. And that, you know, every time the USA is trying to overthrow an anti-imperialist state, they think it's a revolution. And basically, uh, you know, the way, that, uh, the way that the U.S. ruling class dealt with the Weathermen is it recruited them, more or less, right? I mean, the CIA now uses this kind of, you know, new left aesthetic uh, over social media to tear down anti-imperialist countries. And they also are using it to tear down the broad masses of Americans, right? They deserve to be poorer because they're not woke enough. Uh, they've got white privilege. They, I mean, yeah, you know, it's just this whole narrative, the, the, the synthetic left narrative that hates average Americans that hates the broad masses of people, that believes we need, you know, revolutions around the world, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to spread the open international system. I mean, it's all toxic. It's all very, very toxic and this ain't us. Right. And we know about the role of the CIA and promoting this stuff, project MK ultra, the weathermen were all about drugs. They were all about drugs and LSD and promoting drugs everywhere. Well, we know about project MK ultra, the CIA was all about drugs too. Um, It's all out there. And I I mean, I just wanted to talk about this because this is interesting history. I gave a class called Mao and American Socialists, Mao Zedong and American Socialists, where I talk a lot, um, you know, uh, I talk a lot um, about about how the new communist movement in the 1970s, they were trying to reach the broad masses of people. And it was a hard time to do it because China's politics were becoming confused and on top of that, you still had this big aristocracy of labor in the United States. That uh, you know, that you know, there was still enough of a well-paid industrial working class in the United States. People weren't ready to hear it. Uh, but the 1970s New Communist Movement is a very sad, tragic thing to read about. But it's also an example of people trying to do the right thing. But the ground was not fertile. You know, your seeds can be great. You can have the best seeds in the world. But if the ground is not fertile, you can plant the best seeds. You can water them, and they won't grow. And The thing is now the ground is fertile to not not to engage in the crazy left adventurism that the weather people did, but instead to actually reach the broad masses, to go to them with a socialist program like we're doing. We're saying we're not going to them and saying tear the country down. We're saying build the river of life, build the river of life. And we got a leaflet about it. We got a message. We're trying to warn people about the coming Hunger. We're not saying you deserve to be hungry because you're a Euro settler, a white. Op- no, we're not saying that at all. Not saying that at all. We're saying that that the capitalist system, the ruling class, doesn't care about you. And there's this emerging socialist alternative around the world where they have governments that do fight for their people. And we could have that here, um, you know. And we're raising examples of what a government like that would do. What a government like that would do, which would be to build build great construction projects like the River of Life. I've heard many argue World War II was justified, but World War I was not. My that's my view. Yeah. All right. I'll write about that. World War II was justified. World War One was not. All right. Very good. Um, you know, and uh, all this is worth, it's important, it's worth talking about, right? That socialism is an optimistic ideology. And that's what I was trying to get at last night in my my rant about the abortion stuff. It's not, I I am pro-choice. And I said last night on my stream. Over and over again, I am pro-choice. I want abortion to be legal. But we have to have socialism and leftism about more than abortions and drug use and negative things. We need socialism to be about positive things, building people up. And One thing that I thought was an interesting thought I had after the stream last night is, you know, this is worth pointing out, and this is something that, that nobody really wants to talk about, but it's true. The overwhelming majority of Americans, by far, are pro-choice. You know, the majority of black people are pro-choice. The majority of white people are pro-choice. The majority of women are pro-choice. The majority of men are pro-choice. The anti-abortion grouping in the United States, they are a minority. However, why have they been able to achieve what they wanted? Why? Why have they, it looks like they're about to get what they want, no return Roe v. Wade. Why has this minority been so effective? You know, people say, well, it's all a capitalist conspiracy. There's a lot of capitalists that are pro-choice. Planned Parenthood gets billions of dollars from from big corporations and the Rockefellers. There's a lot of capitalists that, that want people having abortions and that want to reduce the population. So, you know, it's not all a capitalist conspiracy. I mean, there's some of that, which is what I'm getting to, is that the religious right is a counter gang that's been built up by the ruling class, right? That there is a struggle within the ruling class, and it was really the CIA, and it was like the Bush wing of the CIA, the neocons built up, you know, Jerry Falwell and these folks as their counter gang. Um, And, you know, they put a lot of money not into building a broad movement to recruit everybody, but instead in building a group of fanatics to fight for what they want. And that group of fanatics, it looks like they're on the brink of getting what they want. And why is that? It's because it's, it's not a question of, of just having a majority, right? If a majority is silent, nobody cares. Nobody cares, right? But when you have a group of people that are fanatical and dedicated to carrying something out, that's much more effective, right? And that, um, that, that this, is, this is kind of interesting here, but you know, the religious right has very much built up a group of people who believe in something are willing to go out and make sacrifices for something. And then on top of that, they do have real roots in communities. Well, yes, they're not the majority by any means. They're a minority, but they're a minority that is well organized. They're a minority that has roots in communities, and they're a minority that has many fanatical adherents. Uh, And they've entered an alliance with one section of the ruling class, and it looks like they're going to get what they want. Now, you know, the organized political left, on the other hand, doesn't have roots in communities, not really. I mean, the labor movement, which was the main leftist, you know, place that you know that there was roots in communities, the labor movement is is pretty weak right now. I mean, I'm really excited about the Amazon labor union. We're going to talk about that. That's that's a step in the right direction. The labor movement's pretty weak, um, you know, and you know, the left doesn't seem to have a, a network of people that are that are supporting them. Um, and just being, you know, just wanting abortion to be legal is not, it's not exuding the same kind of fanaticism. Um, and that, um, that essentially, look, it goes to show that it's not so much about whether or not you have the majority it's, it's whether or not you have the fanatics and you have the momentum. It's more about the momentum, I would say than the majority, you know, the 1960s. Right. Everyone reads about the 1960s. It was defined by the new left, the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement. That was not the majority by any means. They were a small minority of society, but they had the momentum. They had the energy. And by having the momentum, they forced all of society to engage with them. They forced all of society to talk about them. What do they want? What do the Black Panthers want? You know, what, are the, uh, what does the civil rights movement want? What does the, uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement want? And that's one thing um, that can also be noted, is that you can have a very, very radical minority with so much momentum that the rest of society kind of reacts to them and that they define the conversation. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that we can talk about, a lot of different angles um, so I just wanted to give my opening remarks there. You know, we talked about our statement about the River of Life. Uh, we talked about uh, the Weathermen. And now I, we talked about the UN, what went on at the UN today. So before we go to the uh, the roll call, I'm actually just going to play, this is a clip from um, from the Saxon lectures where my friend Paul, he played the Ballad of Joe Stalin, which is a song uh, that, I mean, it's very hard to find, right? Um, and no one really knows what the tune is. It's a song by Ewan McCool, the folk singer from Britain. Um, and uh, there's somebody on the internet, like a Russian guy who did his own version, this very slow version to some old Russian tune. Um, but no one really knows what the tune is. So my friend Paul, who's a folk singer who played at the at the Saxton lectures at our retreat last summer, uh, he took the lyrics to the ballad of Joe Stalin. Um, and he, um, he put them to the Woody Guthrie song. The world has the best the world has ever seen. Um, and that's, that's what he did. He put them to the, the Woody Guthrie song, The Best the World Has Ever Seen. Um, and I really like the ballad of Joe Stalin. Because, you know, put aside how you feel about Stalin. Put aside all of that. It's a song hi- highlighting Stalin as a city builder. It's about all the building that Stalin did. And it's portraying Stalin as somebody who, who raised a country up from nothing, who brought people together. Um, and, you know, I ended my, my polemic, you know, the masses are the water on the failures of late Marxism by talking about Stalin, because why was Stalin able to do what he did? You know, Again, put aside all the criticism, gulags and Moscow trials and all of that. Stalin was one of the most effective leaders in history. No leader has ever dramatically raised a country up that rapidly. I mean, the Soviet Union, when he came in there, it was it was, you know, a third world Country And by the time he left, they had invented space travel. They had nuclear weapons. They had defeated the Nazis. They'd fully electrified. Stalin was able to just really mobilize the Soviet Union to just go up from nothing. And on top of that, Stalin built a global communist movement that was very effective. You know, I mean, Every corner of the world was, was affected by the, Sta- the, the communist movement that Stalin led. I mean, you know, whether it was the Spanish Civil War when people from all over the world went to Spain to fight against the fascists, uh, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's you, know, you know, it's Stalin, you know, uh, the civil rights movement and how, you know, you know the, the communist party in the United States for a long time was the only party that was opposed to Jim Crow. And by the time Stalin was dead, there was already the beginning of Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery bus boycott was happening in the United States. I mean, what Stalin did, I mean, there are a few individuals in history who have as big of an impact as Stalin did. And why is that? What can we learn from Stalin? Again, you know, we can talk about what he did wrong all day long, but what he did right, all of that, defeating the Nazis, raising the Soviet Union up from nothing, building a huge global communist movement, having under his watch communism expanded to China, communism expanded to Eastern Europe, communism expanded to the Korean Peninsula. I mean, I mean, you know, this guy was a Superman. I mean, he was an amazing organizer, right? I mean, there have been few organizers in history uh, who are anywhere near as good as Stalin was in terms of getting shit done. Now, you can say you don't like what he did, and that's, you're missing the point. You're missing the point that Stalin, Stalin had this ability to mobilize people. Stalin, you know, he's from a small village in Georgia. Uh, you know, he went to seminary school to learn to be a priest, dropped out of seminary school, and became a communist organizer. And uh, Stalin was a dynamic individual in so many ways. I mean, he knew how to organize people. And what did? It, why? Why is it now, even today, years after the Soviet Union fell, why is it now that Stalin is so widely loved? It's Stalin is so widely loved because he made Russia a strong industrial modern country that defeated the Nazis, that invented space travel, that wiped out illiteracy, that had the music of Shostakovich, that had the films of Sergei Eisenstein. You know, I mean, he may he he built Russia up to something. He wasn't even Russian. He was Georgian. But anyway, uh, this is the ballad of Joe Stalin. Listen to the lyrics, because this is, you know, Ewan McCool, the British folk singer. He understood why people like Stalin. Um, So this is this is the ballad of Joe Stalin was
3: a mighty man, a mighty man was he He led the Soviet people on the road to victory All through the revolution he fought at Lenin's side They made the combination till the day that Lenin died He said, come all you people, we'll work with brain and hand And then one day the Nazis came into the Soviet land They plundered to the Volga, to Stalingrad, and then just Stalin said, come on me boys, he kicked them out again Joe Stalin was a southerner, in Georgia he was born Where the oranges grow thick and fast in fields of waving corn And Joe he was a farmer, his fingers they were green And he'd plant out the biggest crop the world has ever seen One day he looked upon his map and frowned and shook his head There's too much brown, we need more green, these were the words he said We'll have to change the weather boys, he said, and then he smiled So let's begin by planting trees along three thousand miles Joe Stalin rolled his sleeves up and he said, Come on, let's start! The Volga River and the Don, they are too far apart. I think we'd better join them, so come on, help me, pal. we will build a mighty waterway, the Volga Don Canal. That's the Volga Don Canal. One day he looked into the north and saw the rivers three, all emptying their waters into the polar sea. No, that's not right, Joe Stalin said. Those rivers, they are ours. We'll turn them round and make them work to give electric power there was a range of mountains that was standing in the way so Stalin put his hand out and he smoothed them all away for Joe he was determined to make the land all green and that was the biggest project that the world had ever seen Joe Stalin was a mighty man, he made a mighty plan. He harnessed nature to the plow to work for good of man. He's hammered out the future, the fortune he has been, and made the, the the has has made the worker state the best the world has ever seen. He has made the worker state the best the world has ever seen.
1: Woo, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Harness nature to the plow to do the work of man right? The forgeman he has been. I mean, you know, again, you know, it's like, you know, uh, what is it? Stalin looked upon the map and said, come on, let's start the Volga River and the Don. They are too far apart. I guess we'll have to join them. So come on with me, pal. And so he started the project, the Volga Don Canal, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, it's all about building. Stalin was a city builder, right? Stalin was a city builder. If Stalin was alive today, he would be pushing the you know for us to build the river of life uh throughout the united states right he was a builder that's what people loved stalin for is that he went out and built shit he built the world's largest hydroelectrical power plant at the time the Dnepr dam in ukraine uh you know stalin uh, you know he built uh, the modern steel industry of russia he built the oil industry uh i mean he built shit stalin built shit and he built a lot of shit and he built the country up from nothing uh, and that's why he's so popular but anyhow that um that uh that concludes my opening remarks. So now we're going to do the roll call, and I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations, names and locations. I want to thank Jamie and Laura for their tips. Uh, I do appreciate it uh, for their tips. They're on Rockfin, by the way, and we're streaming right now on Rockfin. If, if I ever get banned from YouTube, you all know exactly where to find me because I'm going to be on Rockfin. They're a free speech platform, they won't get rid of me. Um, so shout out to Laura and shout out to Jamie for their tips on Rockfin. Um, and uh, we're streaming So uh, names and locations We got QC from Los Angeles Theo in PA We got Tom in Alberta, Canada We got Rice from Adelaide, Australia We got Shia from Montreal Ben in Illinois Pueblo in Colorado uh, We got Bendigo, Australia David Fox, we got Empire of Lies uh, Linwood, California Quinn and Meredith Ryan Overstreet in Lexington Don D in NYC uh, Anthony from Fort Worth, MJ from California, Orange County, Bergen County, Christian is with us, Alan in Chicago, oh, thank you for the super chat, Enoch from Australia, Chris in Korea, we got, we got Ryan in Oakland, Joe Gale in Nassau County, great comrade Joe Gale, Bob Troy in New York, we got Ro- Michael Rostarucci in Ithaca, New York, we got Montana, William Martin, we got Los Angeles, uh, Ishmael, we got... Uh, Ariel from Lucas, Morena, Argentina Daniel in Seattle We got LaSalle, Illinois We got CP from Chicago We got Jenny Lin from Cincinnati, Ohio We got Inland Empire, California Thank you, Jazia From Inland Empire Uh, Oh, we got uh, Jennifer Chang From a part of China called Taiwan Thank you, Jennifer Um, And uh, we've got Cam in Meriden, Connecticut Um, We got Ben In Grand Junction uh, we got Marissa in Washington. Uh, we got Cleveland Pirate Alex. Um, we got Juan in Quito, Ecuador. Uh, Marissa in Washington. Uh, very, very good. Uh, we got um, uh, who else? Who else we got here? We got Cleveland Pirate Alex. Very, very good. I, are you really a pirate? Are you really a pirate? A pirate, Alex? Are you really a pirate? Micah in Las Vegas. Dylan from Washington. Valencia, Venezuela, Moscow, Russia, Dallas, Texas, Isaiah, uh, uh, Cle- Cleomenes, uh, very good, very 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 good, very very good. It's so great to have a great great bunch of folks here. It's really really great to have people. You got anyone on the Rockfin? Uh, Albuquerque, Lady Alex M is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, watching on Rockfin. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Um, but there you go. There you go. Temple City, California, John in Denver. Um, we got Baltimore, Nidhin in Baltimore. Uh, there you go. There you go. Um, um, there you go. There you go. Anybody else? Uh, Temple City, California is with us. Very, very good. Got Jamie Nix in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, Hamilton, Ohio. Very, very good. Gingerbread, Jigga Bread, right? in Hamilton, Ohio. never been to Hamilton, Ohio. I'm from Ohio. I don't remember Hamilton, Ohio. But announcement, Australians for a New Democracy will be having its first public event May 28th in Melbourne. That is awesome. That is an awesome announcement. If you're an Australian, you ought to go to their event. Australians for a New Democracy is great. They are the CPI-aligned organization, Char Char Darling Nassau County of Australia. They're having an event. That is so awesome. I am so excited to hear about it. I can't wait to watch the videos of that event. Shout out to David Fox and Helen Woolley and all the great organizers out there in in Australia doing great work. That is so awesome. Um, So there you go. Stalingrad, right? Perspective on anarcho-syndicalism. All right. Anarcho-syndicalism. All right. All right, wrote it down. Thank you for the super chat. If anyone has anything else they want me to talk about, just go ahead and send me a super chat. That's how we work as I answer super chat questions. For the second half of the show, that's how we work. So um, much appreciated, much appreciated. Um, so yeah, um, cheers to Australia. Yeah, that's really great news from Australia. So I've got some super chats here to answer. And so... Um, why don't we just start answering them? And if you've got more things you want me to talk about, um, there you go. All right. First, first question. Um, why is the U.S. trying to start World War III in Ukraine? For a pretty simple reason. Profits. Profits. Russia is a major oil and gas exporting country. And every ounce of oil that Russia sells is an ounce of oil that somebody didn't buy from American oil companies and British companies and natural gas, the same. Every, every ounce of natural gas somebody buys from Russia. They didn't buy from American oil companies and American natural gas companies. And uh, Russia is a competitor. And by getting Russia involved in a war in Ukraine, they can isolate Russia. Uh, they can cost Russia lots of resources. They can impose all kinds of insane sanctions and ro- lock Russia out of the global economy. They're trying to beat down their competitor, Russia. And on top of that, um, the war itself is creating a natural gas and oil shortage in the world, which is driving the price up. So those oil companies are already making way more and more money. The profit margin on oil and gas that they sell is now through uh, because of the shortage created. On top of that, um, American agribusiness is going to clean up because when – by. Their wheat and grain from Russia or from Ukraine. Uh, They're going to have to buy it from American agribusiness. Oh, now aren't they? And so American agribusiness is also going to make out like a bandit. Oh, and the military industrial complex that's now piling all kinds of weapons into Europe. They're making out like bandits. There is a group of billionaires at the top of U.S. society who are literally trying to catch the world on fire in order to make profits for themselves. They want more oil money. They want more natural gas money. They want more wheat money. They want more dominance on international markets, and uh, and they want more money for their weapons manufacturing. And they are catching the world on fire, uh, you know, in order to advance their profits. And they are they are creating a situation where inflation is through the roof. Working families are being squeezed right now all throughout the United States, but they're making profits and they're fine with it. They're ultra monopolists, and they want to see their competitors domestically and internationally wiped out. They want to get rid of all the small mom and pop stores and everyone buy their shit from Amazon. Everyone buy their shit from Walmart. They want to get rid of Russia. They want to get rid of Iran. They want to get rid of Venezuela so that everyone has to buy their gas from Saudi Arabia and from, from ExxonMobil, BP Shell and Chevron. Um, and that's what they want, right? They want to get rid of Huawei technologies so that everyone has to buy their phones from Apple uh, and they want to dominate the world. They want to dominate the world in order to enrich themselves and make lots of profits. Um, and they want to keep the world poor. And this is imperialism, capitalism in its monopoly stage, the export of capital, where the big corporations and banks based in the United States seek to exert their will across the planet and keep the world poor and grind the world into poverty in order to make super profits. profits That's what they want. That's what they want. Um, and that's why they're trying to work through with Russia. The more they provoke it, the more their profits go up, the longer this goes on, the more they can isolate Russia, the more they can they can, you know, create false scarcity on the markets, the more they can stop things that, you know, Russia is going around Africa and helping countries build themselves up and and, you know, helping countries, you know, build up their own natural gas. You know, Gazprom is in African countries trying to help them build up. Their own natural gas, and now they can't, right? Because the Russia involved in a war, and, and Gazprom is sanctioned, and it's like that's what this is about. That's what this is about. They are trying to keep the world poor. They are monopolists. They are imperialist monopolist capitalists. We're trying to keep the world poor so that they can stay rich. and We got to oppose it. We got to oppose it. All righty. Lavrov said Hitler is part Jewish. Did he say that? I mean, I don't know the context of him saying that. That's a common belief. I've never heard that that was confirmed, but a lot of people will say that, well, Hitler was so anti-Semitic because he himself was part Jewish. I've I've heard that said many times by many people, but I don't know if it's true or not. And I also don't know if La- Lavrov said it. I did get your super chat about the fifth column. I got it. Now, I want to know, are you referring to the fifth column, like, you know, traders within the socialist movement? Is that what you're, you know, maybe re- specify who you're referring to, but I got it. I wrote it down. It's definitely in my things to talk about, uh, for tonight. And I'm seeing Rockfin. I got another message on Rockfin. Um, uh, Ross, Ross sent me, um, a super chat. So on Rockfin, I appreciate the tip, Ross. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Ross, uh, for the tip. Very much appreciated. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. Um, so next Super Chat question. Um, Chris Smalls went to the White House today with Joe Biden. That's true, you know. William Z. Foster, Chris Smalls' hero, also went to the White House. William Z. Foster was leading the Great Steel Strike of 1919. Um, and, uh, you know, Will, Woodrow Wilson invited William Z. Foster to the White House to urge him to call it off. Uh, now Chris Smalls is leading the Great Amazon Union Drive. Um, And because of the great Amazon union drive, they just had a setback. The second uh, union vote failed. You know, it's almost like getting the endorsement of Bernie Sanders and AOC was the kiss of death, right? When AOC shunned them, they were doing okay. But now that AOC is, uh, you know, I appreciate that, Gordon, much appreciated. Now that AOC is, uh, is endorsing them and Bernie is endorsing them, all of a sudden they're not doing too well. You know, um, but yeah, look, they want to pretend they care about the labor movement and the Democrats, if they want to have any strength to fight Republicans, they're going to need the labor movement. But the problem is that the labor movement is going to go against the big capitalists who run the Democratic Party. Jeff Bezos is one of the main people who got Trump removed from the White House. Jeff Bezos, the, the billionaire, he owns the Washington Post. He was one of the main financial supporters of the Stop Trump movement. So, you know, you can't be for Chris Smalls and Jeff Bezos. You know, Chris Smalls is trying to cut into the profits of Jeff Bezos, trying to end the super exploitation of the workers at uh, at Amazon, whereas, uh, you know, whereas, you know, Jeff Bezos wants to make super profits. So, you know, the Democrats are in with the ultra rich monopolies and the labor movement is fighting against the ultra rich monopolies. That's why you've seen so much sympathy for Chris Smalls among right wing media. Fox News generally is pretty anti-union, but they like Chris Smalls they hate jeff bezos and this is the beginning this is the very beginning folks of the anti-monopoly coalition it's the beginning because pretty soon the small business owners are going to realize that the labor movement is their friend and that the same big monopolies that are trying to crush the small business owners are also trying to crush the labor movement and pretty soon the small business owners the lower level capitalists and the labor unions and the anti-imperialist countries, the countries around the world that're fighting imperialism, are all going to be in one great anti-monopoly alliance. China and Russia and Venezuela and the labor unions and Chris Smalls and, and small business owners and you know, they're going to be in an alliance because the main enemy of humanity is the imperialists, the ultra-monopolies. Right? These small business owners, they want to make more money. If China comes and, and invests and does business with them, they make more money. The ultra monopolies want to crush China. Right? Again, these small business owners, they want to do business with Russia. However, the ultra monopolies want to crush Russia. Meanwhile, the labor movement, you know, they're organizing those Amazon workers and those Walmart workers and those Starbucks workers um, against the ultra monopolies. And if they bring more income into the neighborhoods and communities uh, where the workers live, then those workers are going to have more money to spend. At small businesses. So we're seeing the very beginning of what William Z. Foster spoke about the anti-monopoly coalition. The main enemy is the monopolists. The imperialists, ultra rich, the big oil bankers, Exxon Mobil, BP, Shell, Chevron, the big, you know, retail monopolies like Amazon Walmart, the big oil companies, uh, the big weapons manufacturers, you know, the big. Tech giants, the Silicon Valley fascists, the imperialists, that's who our enemy is. Imperialism is not a verb. It's not like when a country attacks a country. The imperialists are not foreign policy hawks or Pentagon generals. The imperialists are the ultra monopolists for whom a global apparatus of production is centered around. Right, And the imperialists are the monopolists. And William Z. Foster said the road to socialism in America is building an anti-monopoly coalition. Right? Talk about class-based partnerships beyond abortion. HLM tonight mentioned you. Well, thank you, Laney. I didn't I didn't realize that, but we'll talk about class based partnerships beyond abortion. Laney's great, by the way. Hard lens media is awesome. All right. Class based partnerships beyond abortion. All righty. Very, very good. Very, very good. All right. How should socialists deal with the fifth column? What is the fifth column? The term fifth column originated during the Spanish Civil War. It goes back to the Spanish Civil War when Franco, the fascist, um you know was was attacking the city of Madrid. And Franco said, I have four columns outside the city, but I also have a fifth column inside the city. And the fifth column that he was referring to was traitors, right? He had a group of people in the city uh, who were pretending to support the Spanish Republic but were actually on his side. And who were the fifth column? Historical fact, historical fact, a lot of people don't want to hear who were the fifth column in Spain. Who were the fifth column? It was the Trotskyites. It was the PUM, The Poom. The, the P-O-U-M, uh, the, what is it? The Workers' Unity Party of, what is it? I, I don't even know what PUM stands for. It was a party in Spain that was Trotskyites and Bukharinites in Spain. The PUM, they were called. And they were were a party in Spain that claimed to be a communist party that was trying to undermine the Spanish Republic. They had an ultra-left position. The communist party was trying to unify the Spanish people, the capitalists, the priests, the nuns, the workers, the peasants, into a united front against fascism. And the Trotskyites of the PUM. We're saying, oh, no, oh, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Um, you know, we got we to gotta have a workers' socialist revolution right now. And they were alienating, alienating the capitalists and pushing the capitalists into the fascist camp and pushing the Catholic Church into the, ca- the, the fascist camp. They were organizing strikes at a time where there needed to be unity among the Spanish Republic. And the Trotskyites were the fifth column and uh, you read uh, the leader uh, of, uh, of the the leader of the Spanish Communist Party at the time is a woman, uh, and you know her rant against the Trotskyites was I mean she hated the Trotskyites because they they were working they were in effect by organizing strikes and disrupting the you know the United Front against Fascism they were laying the basis for for the fascists winning right uh, with their ultra leftist rhetoric and it turns out it's a historical fact. Now it's been revealed that Hitler and Mussolini were covertly giving money to the P O U M, the Trotskyites in Spain. They were getting money from, uh, from the, from the, the, not the fascists. They didn't know it. Somebody was giving them money because it caused a disruption in the, in the, in the camp of the, uh, of the anti-fascists, right? And that's where the term fifth column comes from. Uh, the fifth column, the Trotskyites are the fifth column, right? That, that you know, that there's an active civil war between Franco and the Spanish Republic. The Spanish Republic had a lot of communists in it, had a lot of people who weren't communists. Had a lot of priests and nuns and all of that. Well, the PUM and the, the CNT, the CNT was the Anarchist Labor Union. The CNT and the PUM were both getting funding from, from the fascists, and they didn't know it. And they were used to enable the Spanish Republic to be defeated. Um and you know the United States wouldn't allow they had the neutrality act so there was no no one in the USA was allowed to support the Spanish Republic but there were a lot of Americans who went to Spain and fought against the fascists. They were called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade they were called and they were a, a group of about 4,000 American communists who went to Spain and fought against fascism and saw so, and in solidarity Um, it's a kind of an amazing story. But yeah, that's where the term fifth column comes from. So, how do we deal with the fifth column? Well, there's always gonna be a fifth column in our movement. There's always gonna be people who preach socialism but practice fascism, social democracy. They talk about social democracy is the enemy within, right? Um, and they talk about how, you know, the bread tube and all of that. We just gotta expose them, right? And we gotta we gotta counter their arguments and not let them be deceived. um, you know, and honestly. There's a fair amount of criticism one could make of the Spanish Communist Party also. While the the PUM, the POUM, the Trotskyites, and the anarchists of the CNT, they were pushing an ultra-leftist line that helped the fascists, you could argue that in some ways the Spanish Republic, they got to be a little too reformist. They didn't give the Spanish working class something to fight for. They were fighting against fascism, but they didn't give them something to fight for. And the Spanish Republic, they should have pushed socialism more right and that, that the communists they watered down the socialism a little bit too much so there's there's a fair criticism you can make of the spanish communist party but it shows that the battle of Catalonia, where the trotskyites took up guns against the spanish republic and basically there was an armed battle not between the fascists and the spanish republic but between the anti-fascist government and the trotskyites who also claim to be anti-fascist it was that confusion that ultimately laid the basis for the victory of Franco. One thing that was very infamous, right, is that, and even now, if you read, like if you read uh, Winston Churchill's memoirs of the Second World War, um, you know, and, I mean, it was a really big deal that in these rural parts of Spain, not in the urban centers of Spain, but in the rural parts of Spain, uh, the anarchists um, would lead peasant uprisings. And these peasants, you know, when peasants are oppressed, peasants are really, really oppressed. And so when peasants start fighting back, it gets bloody. And that's true in Russia. That's true in China. That's true in Cambodia. That's true during the French Revolution of of the 1790s. Wherever you have peasants, you know, fighting back, they tend to take revenge in pretty vicious ways because you don't know how oppressed peasants are. You know, peasants, they talk about like peasants couldn't look a landlord or noble in the face. Like the amount of degradation that a peasant goes through. You know, you talk about You know, in the in the US South, you know, the sharecropper system that was kind of like feudalism, but it wasn't that, it wasn't full-on feudalism, but the humiliation that the sharecroppers endured in the South, where they would always get ripped off, it was always rigged against them, and you know, they would have to like you know look up at the landowner, you know, Mr. Bossman or whatever. I mean, it's like the amount of degradation and humiliation peasants endure is massive. So in the rural parts of Spain, the peasants were rising up against the nobles and the landowners led by anarchists. And they would take revenge on these landowners and they would cut them into pieces and rip them, rip their bodies apart and stuff. And they also would attack the church because they saw the church as defending the landowners. And there were a number of incidents, there, you know, these peasants, they would rise up against the local noble or landowner, kill him, and then they would kill a bunch of nuns and priests, right? Um, you know, and they would cut off the heads of nuns and priests. And of course, around the world, there's many Catholics in the world who are going to hear about that. And they're just going to be horrified at this kind of behavior. And the Communist Party was going to the countryside and saying, stop it. Just stop it. All right. Just don't engage in this kind of behavior because there's a lot of Catholics in the world. And, and they're going to see this. And you know they don't understand that you're oppressed. They don't understand the circumstances. They just see a big mob of peasants you know, murdering priests and nuns. And if you read all over, it's in the history books that communists killed priests and nuns in Spain. No, communists were trying to stop it. It was crazy anarchists and peasant anarchists who were killing priests and nuns, and the communists were trying to stop it. And there's a lot of bullcrap written about Spain. There's this movie called Land and Freedom made by the Trotskyite filmmaker. Uh, I don't even remember his name. Who's the Trotskyite filmmaker? The guy who, you know. And there's all this stuff. You know, uh, George Orwell. He lived in Spain and he wrote this whole book blaming. The rise of fascism on the Stalinists. The Stalinists were holding back the revolution. No, the Stalinists didn't hold back the revolution enough. If the Stalinists had been able to stop these mobs of crazy peasants from, from raping and murdering priests and nuns and cutting their heads off, and if they had stopped things like the Battle of Catalonia happening, and they'd been able to hold the united front together, if they'd been able to hold the United Front together, they could have defeated fascism. No, the idea that all oh, the you know it's it's all the Stalinists' fault that you know that's the Trotskyite narrative, and it's a bunch of bullshit, right? You know, a bunch of bullshit, right? Ken Loach is the thing I'm thinking of, right? It's this whole narrative where it's like, no, I mean, the the, the fascists were the main enemy. The fascists were the main enemy, and these ultra-leftists were being covertly supported by the fascists in order to carry that out. So there you go. That's that's some interesting history there. Um, World War II was justified. World War I was not. Well, yeah, World War I was an imperialist war. Right? The, the the British and the French imperialists were, were, you know, the top imperialists were the British, right? And they were aligned with the French and the Americans. Um, and the German and Austrian and Turkish imperialists were their rivals, right? So the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the German Empire. Uh, They were, you know, in a rivalry uh, with the British and the French empires, and eventually the Americans got involved. Um, And it was just a fight, you know, it was a fight between the imperialist powers about who got to dominate uh, the colonized world, right? They were fighting, they weren't fighting over Europe, they were fighting over Africa, they were fighting over Asia, they were fighting over Latin America. Um, It was about, it was a fight about controlling the colonized world. And 20 million working people were sent to their deaths in a battle Uh, between capitalists over who got to dominate the world. And it was a horrible war. And, uh, you know, the, the Bolsheviks were against the war. And Rosa Luxemburg in Germany was against the war. And Eugene Debs in the United States was against the war. But the majority of socialists in the world sold out and supported the war. The German socialists supported the war. The French socialists supported the war. All these socialist parties that had promised to never support a war turned around and supported it. Right? And that's why you know, the Bolsheviks started calling themselves communists instead of calling themselves socialists because they didn't want to be associated with the, the social democrats who had supported the war. And the second international social democracy proved it had no revolutionary potential because it supported the war. And the war was devastating. Uh, It was absolutely devastating. World War I was just horrendous, right? And what were these people dying for? They were dying for the super profits of big corporations, right? Uh, The Zimmerman telegram, you know, that was a forgery, right? That supposedly the Germans sent a message asking Mexico to invade the United States. That's a bunch of bullshit. And, you know, the Lusitania and all this stuff. I mean, you know, it was, you know, and, and they used the war in the United States to crush the socialist movement. The IWW, the industrial workers of the world, they were crushed uh you know the the um the socialist party and Eugene Debs were thrown into prison and the USA became almost like a military dictatorship during World War 1 and they threw all kinds of socialists and revolutionary organizers in federal prison it was awful i mean it was awful uh one story that i hear during world war 1 that's particularly wild somebody made a patriotic movie to support the war some guy made a movie called the spirit of 1776 it was a patriotic movie he made To support the war. It was a silent movie. And he made a patriotic movie. And he went to jail. He actually went to jail for making this movie. Why did he go to jail for making the movie? Because it portrayed the British as bad. And that might hurt the war effort. Whoopsie daisy. I mean that's how insane the country got. A guy went to jail for making a movie. About the revolutionary war in the United States. A patriotic film to support the war effort. Because it showed the British as being bad. A farmer. Um, the story goes, there was, I believe there was a case, there was a Supreme court case where a farmer, you know, uh, like somebody's car had broken down along the road. And so, you know, the, you know, the guy went to the farmhouse to get help and he was talking to the farmer, um, you know, about world war one and the farmer said he didn't support it. And he thought that the war was no good. And then that guy reported him back to the government and then the government arrested the farmer for sedition. And the farmer, you know, was, was dragged into jail. For, for remarks he made in the privacy of his own home against World War one I. I mean it was like you have no idea the United States became almost like a fascist country during World War one um you know it was awful it was really really awful um you know and you know were, I believe they rounded up 5,000 communists in the middle of the night and deported them it was called the Palmer raids the Palmer raids Mitchell Palmer uh, was the was the um, the leader of the. US Department of Justice and he, rounded up 5,000 people in one night and deported them from the united states emma goldman the anarchist was deported from the united states um and these were people that had become u.s citizens even they lost their citizenship they were deported from the united states because they were opposed to world war one because they were communists um you know deb's went to prison for giving an anti-war speech in canton ohio and yeah world war one was an utter nightmare and uh you know, the, the amount of PTSD, I mean, it devastated, it devastated people. I mean, the the, the chemical weapons, right? The, the the poison gas these people breathed in. You know, a lot of these guys came home from World War One, and you know, it's like I'm I'm only 34 years old, but my parents could remember when they were kids, there were survivors of World War One who were still around. They were old, and they could remember, you know, you know. Survivors of World War I, you know, like when they were like little children, my parents, when they were like little children in the 50s, there were still survivors of World War I. World War I veterans were still living. And, so, you know, it was not uncommon, you know, in your town or your community that there'd be somebody who was coughing for the rest of his life from lung damage, from mustard gas, mustard gas, chemical w- weapons, you know, poison gas that, that people had breathed in in World War I. I mean, awful, awful stuff. Awful stuff, and uh, you know, go read uh, "All Quiet on the Western Front." That's a novel that was published in Germany um, about the horrors of World War I. All Quiet on the Western Front. The Nazis act actually outlawed it, but it's a good novel, um, you know, portraying the horrendous conditions of that war. World War I was an utter, utter disaster, and it shows how evil capitalism. It was capitalism deteriorating into pure barbarism. World War II, on the other hand was a fight against fascism, right? The Nazis, had, you know, had, you know, were trying to conquer the world and they were trying to destroy the Soviet Union. Their mission was to rid the world of Bolshevism. Uh, they wanted to build a global fascist government um, and the, you know, the capitalists of the United States entered a united front with the Soviet Union to defeat fascism. And it was an awful war as well, but it made sense. If Hitler had won, you know, and won World War I uh, or World War II, it would be a completely different world. So World War One was an inter-imperialist rivalry. World War II was a global anti-fascist struggle. Now, that's not to say there weren't evil things done by both sides in World War II, and that's true. I mean, the bombing of Dresden, that was pretty horrific, Um, you know, pretty horrific crime. You know, know, the the firebombing of Tokyo, I mean, the USA... You know, the bombing that they did, I mean, the, the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atomic bombing, that was horrendous on it on its own. But the the firebombing of, of Tokyo and and the firebombing of, of Japanese cities, these are cities that are made out of wood, right? It's like wooden cities, right? I mean, and they just they just burned these cities. I mean, it was like, you know, the atrocities that were committed. Um, so you know, and that's why after World War One, or after World War Two, even, you know, you did have condemnation. Um, because, you know, one thing that's been pointed out, and again, this shows nuance. Was the USA right in World War II? Yes. Was the Soviet Union right to align with the United States against the Nazis? Yes. Did the U.S. government do evil things during World War Two? War yes. Japanese internment? Evil. Very, very evil. Um, and actually, what they did, the horrendous bombing that the USA did to Vietnam during the Vietnam War, that the USA did to Korea during the Korean War, they tried it out on Japan first, right? I mean, it was Japan is where they first did that, that kind of that mass firebombing. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, the the amount of civilians that were killed. I mean, it's like, you know, they talk about like some of these bombing raids that were carried out during the Second World War. I mean, the USA killed like half a million people in one night, mass bombing of civilian cities. And the USA did that during the Vietnam War later. It did it during the Korean War later, Um, you know, and but they learned to do it during World War Two. And that goes to show you that, you know, that again, there's there's different contradictions. Right. You know, just because you know someone can point to some atrocity that russia is allegedly committing in ukraine right i'm not saying it's true but let's say it is let's say that russia did something bad in ukraine let's just for the sake of argument does that therefore prove that the ukrainian neo nazis are right and that that russia shouldn't be protecting the people of the eastern regions from what the ukrainian nazis are doing no right that that often often that there is there is a plague on you know there's there's bad signs there's bad Things done on both sides. That's not what the war is about, though, right? The U, I mean, that's what I was kind of blown away by is I was listening to a debate, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, Russia, you know, Russia oppresses homosexuals, so I'm neutral in the war. It's like, oh, okay, so I guess you'd be neutral in World War II because of Japanese internment. You know, Japanese internment was bad. Didn't mean Hitler was right in World War II. You know, it just meant that the USA, that was right, was doing something bad in the process of being right. Very different. Very, very different. Very, very, very different. All right. Next question. Anarcho-syndicalism. What is anarcho-syndicalism? Anarcho-syndicalism, right? So, first of all, just a recap, you know, for those of you who don't listen regularly, I have to repeat myself. There are three schools of anti-capitalist thought. Social democracy, Marxism, communism, and anarchism. Social democracy is the belief that Capitalism just kind of naturally turns into socialism one step at a time. Socialism is the sum of reforms, right? That one day we have free healthcare and the next day we have progressive income tax and and we have free college and one day gradually all the reforms just kind of add up into socialism. That's social democracy, and it's pro-imperialist. It says that the USA and the Western countries are the most advanced on the road to socialism, so therefore they have the right to dominate the world and conquer the world because they're bringing their more advanced system around the world. That's social democracy. That's the British Labour Party. That's the French Socialist Party. That's DSA. That's what they believe, right? So then communism is the group that says, oh no, oh no, everyone should read Fallout by Fred Pierce Regarding the development of nuclear bombs and warfare. Okay, I've never heard of that book. Sounds good, Lanny. Thank you. Thank you very much. Communism or Marxism is different than social democracy. That's that social democracy says it's just a battle for day-to-day reforms that eventually add up. Marxism says it's a struggle for political power. It is a struggle to seize political power. You know, we want to take political power, and with political power, we seek to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat, or a working-class government that will then create socialism. and There's a clear event horizon. There's a revolution. There's a moment where the workers take control of the state. Now, we prefer a peaceful transition. Uh, The capitalists may not allow a peaceful transition, but we do not advocate a violent revolution. We want a peaceful transition. But there's a clear event horizon. It's not the sum of reforms. There is a, a clear moment where the workers have to take power, and it's a struggle to seize power, seize control of the government. And with the control of the government, the government can then nationalize the industries, can then take control of the means of production, create worker cooperatives, plan the economy, etc. So that's that's communism, and communism is anti-imperialist because it says that the Western capitalist system is going around the world holding back development, and then in order to hasten the workers' struggle in the imperialist countries, we support the defeat of the imperialists. Right when the big monopolies like Amazon and, and Walmart and the big oil companies they go to attack a country. Uh, we want them to lose. We want that country to beat them, beat them back, right? Because that's, you know, we're fighting the monopolists too. We share a common destiny with the people around the world and the struggle against imperialism. We're also trying to defeat the big monopolies. We're also trying to defeat Amazon. We're trying to defeat, you know, Walmart. We're trying to defeat the, the big oil companies and Rockefeller and DuPont and Carnegie. And we're trying to defeat the, uh, you know, the, the Silicon Valley elite and Bill Gates. That's, you know, so we have a common a common enemy and a common struggle we're anti-imperialist we're anti-imperialist and we're struggling for political power for the working class to seize political power that's communism that's ant-marxism marxism leninism scientific socialism and then you have the third school which is called anarchism and anarchism rejects politics altogether social democrats want to reform the politics gradually communists want to seize political power anarchists reject politics Anarchists say they reject politics entirely and they say that they want to create a socialist society on the basis of voluntary activities. They're going to build worker cooperatives. They're going to build little, um, you know, little community gardens. They're going to build labor unions uh, and the the, the system is just going to kind of collapse and there's going to be a spontaneous workers movement that will overthrow it and that capitalism will fall apart and it won't be through political act- action but with with you know with direct action of the workers on the job or with the building of community assemblies etc the new the new society will emerge voluntarily there will be no coercion involved and it will be through building up these new organs of community power etc and that's anarchism so Anarcho syndicalism is a particular and thank you defund the oligarchy. I do appreciate it. Anarcho syndicalism is a particular branch of anarchism that focuses on the labor movement. Syndicalism, a syndicate—that's a word. I believe it's a word in in Spanish. The word sindicato means union, right? Or in 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 French, uh, in French, it's like what is it syndicate? I don't remember what the French word is, but I think in in Spanish, sindicato is a union. The workers form a union, they're forming a sindicato, right? And a syndicalist, right, is is someone who is focused on the labor movement. And syndicalism is a wing of the socialist movement that focuses on the workers seizing their factories. The goal is that the workers in their unions will eventually take control of the factories, syndicalism. So anarcho-syndicalism is a form of syndicalist politics that rejects, you know, that is is aligned with anarchism, that rejects politics at all, right? It's labor union activism that rejects politics, right? Anarcho-syndicalism is the belief that the workers will rise up and seize their factories. We don't want to vote. Voting doesn't matter. We don't want to try to change the law. Laws don't matter. It's the direct action on the job between the worker and the boss, between the employer and the employee, and they're in a push and pull struggle, and eventually the workers will have one big union. The IWW was an anarcho-syndicalist union. One big union, and there'll be a great general strike, and the workers will seize control of their factories from the bosses. That's anarcho-syndicalism, it's, and and it's, You know, it is, it, it was, you know, the anarcho part that's new. We don't, we say that now, if you'd gone back to like the 1800s, you know, they would have called these people anarchists because they were advocates of violent revolution and they would have been syndicalists because they were building labor unions. But the idea of like an anarcho syndicalist, that's like a 1980s, 1990s, Noam Chomsky kind of thing. Um, you know, but syndicalism is a school of thought that says it just favors direct action on the job between the workers and the employers. They tend to have the myth, the, the idea that there will be a great general strike, that that's what the revolution will be. One day the workers will refuse to go to work until, until their demands are met. There'll be the great general strike, um, and they don't vote, and they don't even try to change the laws. It's just about organizing unions on the job. That's anarcho-syndicalism. Um, you know. Uh, and yeah, there you go. Um, all right, class-based partnerships beyond abortion. Right. I am pro-choice as I said on my stream last night. But there are many people around the country that are not pro-choice. You know, that think abortion is wrong because they're a Muslim or they're a Christian or they're an Orthodox Jew or they just plain think abortion's wrong and they want it outlawed. I don't agree with those people. I think abortion should be legal. Um, and I said why in great detail on last night's stream. However, you know, I have stood shoulder to shoulder with Catholics against the death penalty. I have stood shoulder to shoulder with Muslims, uh, you know, uh, you know, fighting for Palestine and in solidarity with Iran. I've stood shoulder to shoulder with Orthodox Jews, uh, you know, that are also pro-Palestine, uh, you know, and and you know, those folks don't believe in abortion. I don't think they're Nazis. I don't think they're fascists. I don't think they deserve to be canceled. You know, I just think that we disagree on that issue, you know, and uh, you know, if there's a day when I'm marching For women's right to choose, they won't come to that rally. And that will be a point of disagreement. Um, And that, you know, when you talk about a class-based alliance, at the beginning of this stream, I read our statement, our initiative that the Center for Political Innovation is doing right now. War in Europe will bring hunger, build the river of life, demanding that our government take action to stop the food crisis that's happening. I bet there's many, 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 many people around the country who are anti who are anti-abortion, who would agree with every word of this statement, you know, maybe not, maybe not every word, okay? There might be some parts of it they just don't know about. They probably don't know about the stuff about Russia and stuff like that. But in terms of what we're for, building the great man-made river, or uh, the, the river of life, for, you know, they would agree with us. In terms of, you know, trying to stop the food crisis, they would agree with us. Instead of stop focusing on tearing down Russia, They would agree with us. I mean, this statement that we're going to get everywhere. I mean, we're going to get thousands and thousands of copies of this all over the country. We're going to get this message out there. Um, And we are going to try our hardest to to get people across the country, across the country, to hear this message. You know, war in Europe will bring hunger, build the river of life. Um, And I think there's a lot of people that would be, you know, perhaps anti-choice against abortion, that would agree with this uh, with this statement. Uh, and that's the kind of thing. We need to be putting forward an economic program to improve people's lives. We need to be creating, organizing on a class basis, class for itself, class against class, right? Against the big monopolies, against the imperialists. We need to build the anti-monopoly coalition and demanding a government of action that will build great construction projects and take control of natural resources and organize the economy for the people You know, that is a populist conception that can lead to socialism, right? Um, I read you all, you know, the various programs that socialists have come to power on around the world. And it's generally demanding a government of action that fights for working families and, you know, demanding that the government take action to improve things like housing and healthcare and education. So there you go. All right, folks, I think that's where our stream ends for tonight. So I want to thank you for everything. Um, I want to also mention that I'm still banned from PayPal. So if you want to help me out, um, if you want to help me out, you can send me a gift on Zelle. Zelle, that is the banking transaction, uh, you know, banking service. If You can Zelle me uh, uh, a contribution, and that would just be to my email at gmail.com. Caleb Oppen at gmail.com. So if you want to give me a bank, a, a Zelle, because you can't PayPal me because that's not how it works, you can send me a contribution on Zelle. That would be appreciated. And on top of that, if you're a member of the Center for Political Innovation, you are a member. It's only members only. June 22nd through 26th, we are having our national gathering. It's in the heartland of America at an undisclosed location. I have secured that undisclosed location, which is a huge relief because it was ambiguous where it's going to be, but it's now nailed down. The location is picked. And so if you want to come to our national gathering, if you're a member, Uh, Soon, you will be getting an invitation to our national gathering. Um, And it's going to be awesome. Uh, Thank you, Theodore, for the super chat. It's going to be an awesome four day communist training school summer camp in the heartland of America. Uh, And uh, I really hope you will join us there. So keep that in mind. Mark your calendar. Uh, We will be sending out the invitation to all members very soon. Uh, So uh, there you go. There you go. All right, folks. All right, folks. Best wishes. Talk to you soon. New upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging Revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today.